0: Asking for help can be one of the hardest things. can it? I, I, maybe I'm just projecting, but uh, that's for me. Asking for help can be one of the hardest things. And I think we run into this double bind of suppressing our issues and needs to the point that they're out of control. But we suppress, we say, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, right? I don't have any needs, I don't have any issues. But then we ping to the other polar opposite of being extremely needy, right, and demanding, and uh, we see these two extremes in our culture, I think, don't we? we on the one hand, the American individualism says, you know, you're an individual, you're fine. Uh, be strong, be autonomous, well-rounded, self-sufficient. That is ideal. And then the American consumerism plays right into that. We will let you buy your way out of anything. You can provide for yourself. You can figure it out. Be you, right? But then on the other hand, there's this very prevalent moment uh, movement that says if your needs aren't being met, Uh, then you're entitled to do whatever. You're entitled to act in whatever way that you want to get them all met. And so instead of being without needs and self-sufficient, all of a sudden we're super needy. uh, And we're really needy when, for example, our spouse isn't meeting the needs we want. uh, Our streaming service isn't meeting our needs. Our grocery store isn't giving us the right food. Um, You know, you can see how consumerism plays into this as well right? Even our church. Church isn't cool enough. The same guy's doing everything. What's the point? It's not a very great church, right? Uh, and you could be like, what? Uh, I'm just going to jump ship. I'm skipping out. I'm done, right? You can, if your marriage is incompatible, you can say, I'm out. I'm done. If, if uh, of course, and, and the consumerism plays right into this, and we're just left with uh, all these either no-need independent robots that are self-sufficient, or these very demanding, entitled creatures, codependent on each other, codependent on things that um, cannot give us life because they don't have life. Surprised that proud people left to themselves are basically running around trying to solve the problem. It doesn't work. Uh, This—it's our—the image of God has been broken and disintegrated in us, and that's what happens when pride takes over. When We are on the throne of our hearts and not God. We can't protect ourselves. We can't provide for ourselves in our own power. We are weak. So we ping back and forth between entitlement um, and neediness in regard to things and others or self-sufficiency. And sometimes we do that within the same hour, right? Of the same day. We can just be all over the place. We're unstable. And so we shouldn't be surprised at that because Jesus is the stabilizing rock, right? He is the foundation of our lives. And when we're not turning to him and asking for help, Um, it's going to be unstable. And so His grace allows us to come to God humbly. That's what we're going to see today. Because He came to us in humility, we have no right to come to Him except in humility. So the big idea I'm going to give you right off the bat for Psalm 28, I'll give you now and then we'll explore together throughout, is um, humble pleading is the pathway to God's provision and protection. Humble pleading is the pathway, the way through to get God's provision and protection. It requires humility and reliance on God. And so, we first we're going to see this in the first few verses here. If you turn there, Psalm 28, verse 1. We see that true humility leads us to plead with God in our need. And so let's read verses 1 and 2. It says, Lord, I call to you, my rock. Do not be deaf to me. If you remain silent to me, I will be like those going down to the pit. Listen to the sound of my pleading when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hand towards your holy sanctuary. If you look at verse 1, David begins by calling out to the Lord his rock. And that admission... That God is the most solid thing in his life In his life is the basis for the whole psalm, right? The rest of it doesn't make any sense. That has to be the grounding presupposition. And if um, that were not deeply believed, then he would have never written the rest of it. And I think that's the same tr- thing for us. We just have to pause right there, that first phrase, Oh Lord, my rock, I call to you my rock. We have to pause. If we don't believe that, thing, that same thing as true, We're wasting our time in prayer, right? Why would you pray to someone who is not a strong foundation for your life? We come to God because he's the only solid thing in our lives of sinking sand, things that move all the time. He's the only one that can actually help us. And so we see David pleading. He says uh, he asks him not to be deaf and don't remain silent in his pleading. And this is something we, we see a lot in the Psalms. God, don't turn your ear away from me. And it should cause us pause, right? What what is that about? Um, does David doubt God? Does he is he not sure that God can hear everything? Um, is he not sure that God cares? It's actually a, a device that that shows the exact opposite. Actually, a literary device that shows the exact opposite. He's so confident in God that God will hear him, that he will respond. He knows God will respond, and so he can boldly ask for it. And he doesn't do this from a place of pride, but humility, he calls his words pleading, right? Which that's not like a a strong, invokes a lot of power, right, in it, right? It's a pleading person is vulnerable. It's a vulnerable description, and it shows David is desperate here. We also see that this is an act of worship. It says, uh, I cry out to you for help when I lift my hands toward your holy sanctuary. And so, although we might look down on people who are pleading, and the concept of pleading. David here says it is reverent worship. That posture is reverence and, and worship. And, and how often do we fail to come to God like this? How often um, we think, you know, we don't think God cares. And so if we don't think God cares, we're not going to approach him in this way. Especially in this bold way David approaches him. It's like he's almost commanding God. He says, if you look at the way the verbs are, the verbs are there. Um, they're, they're, don't be deaf, God. Listen. God, almost demanding. And again, is he falling into entitled pride? I don't think so. He's acknowledging that God is the only source of his strength, right? He says he is his rock and support, and that compels him to call out to him in worship. It's solid, and he knows that when he cries out, it will be answered. God is the only one that hears us. God is the only one that can do something, right? Throughout the Old Testament, all the jokes in the prophets about the, the idols who are chunks of rock, chunks of metal. They, don't have, they have ears that are like carved in, but they don't hear. They don't do anything. Our idols as well do not do anything. They can't help us. He's the only one that can do something. And so if that's true, then we might as well come in humility. We might as well come in reverence. I'm reminded of the persistent widow in, in Luke 18, who the, the way Jesus tells the parable is there's this judge who doesn't care at all about Anybody, But this widow just keeps coming and asking and he finally relents. And the, the idea is how much more will God, a loving God, how much more will he respond to us? How much more will he see us and care for us when we come to him? This worship that David engages in here, it's not tame. It's not emotionally stoic. It's not full of fancy religiosity and fancy words. He's desperate and he goes to the only one who he knows can do something for him. And that's a, a question for us in our desperation, right? In our need, what do we do? And if we're honest, if I'm honest, it's often entitled grasping uh, and idolatry of things that or people that are going to help me that I think are my rock, that are my fortress. Or we have proud self-sufficiency and idolatry of self. I'm the only one who can care for me. I'm the only one who's going to get my needs met. It's all up to me. So what do you do when you're desperate? Where do you go? Where do you, who do you trust in? Do you look outside of God, the true lock, rock? Do you look in, inward? Do you look at yourself? Um, none of those things are going to be sufficient as foundations for your life. And I, I was aware, last time I was at Green Pond Beach, I'm aware of like that sand, if you guys have been there, like it's a little more coarse and I realized, yeah, sand's just a bunch of rocks like, that are like, really small. It's like, oh, I think probably everybody knew that, but it just struck me. And, uh, but like, you think about people and material things or ourselves. We are like little grains of sand, and we think, okay, I need more of this, and I'm just going to gather my sand into a pile, and I'm going to build on top of that. Got a lot of stuff. I'm, it's it's going to be a good foundation. You, got, you know the parable, right? You build on sand. It goes away. It's gone. Jesus is the massive bedrock, the foundation of the entire earth that we can build our life on, that we form our worship around, that we go to for refuge in this fallen world. That This fallen world, we're, we're going to experience pain. We're going to experience suffering. That's where desperate creatures like us live. And he's the only solid thing here. He's the only refuge. And because of Jesus' high priestly work that we just sung about on our behalf, because of his Death and resurrection that makes him a perfect intermediary between us and God. We have a strong and perfect plea before the throne of God. Where we can plead. Pleading is worship. Crying out to God is worship. It's not just for weak Christians. Because guess what? We're all weak. So it is. Because it's for all of us. Because we're all weak, right? The need to plead with God. It applies to all of us who think we're well-adjusted to, right? Not just desperate people. It's for everyone. And so um, we have to recognize that to lift our hands up to God and pleading and asking for help is necessary. We all need to take that posture at some point in our lives and it's better more frequently than not because where are we going to be able to find grace and help in our time of need except before the throne of God? So there's the question, though. Okay, so I, I follow you. Pleading is important in this posture. I don't really want to. It's kind of vulnerable and humble, but I'm um, convinced. Yeah, it makes sense. But what do we plead for, right? Because what do we plead with God for? What do we ask God for? Certainly there's going to be ways to do this reverently and, and faithfully. And so we see David here pleading, and we see the content of it. What is he actually pleading for? And in this next section, we see that he pleads for righteousness, and justice to be dealt. And this is really tricky for us as Christians to do, but let's we'll, we'll unpack it together. So he pleads for righteousness and justice. He says in verse 3, if you look at verse 3, Do not drag me away with the wicked, with the evildoers, who speak in friendly ways with their neighbors, with malice in their hearts. Repay them according to what they have done, according to the evil of their deeds. Repay them according to the work of their hands. Give them back what they deserve, because they do not consider what the Lord has done or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and not rebuild them. So first David is pleading with God he, and it's again, it's this command. He's in this command mode with God at this uh, request telling God, don't drag me away with the wicked, with the evildoers who speak in friendly ways with their neighbors while malice is in their hearts. And he, he's Asking and and counting on God not to do that because He's asking to be found in the right. He's asking—that's why I mentioned in in your handout there. He's asking for righteousness, being counted as in the right. It seems kind of preposterous in some way, right? But we know David, Psalm fifty-one, prime example. Throughout his confession in Samuel, when he's confronted with sin, uh, he knows he's a mess, right? He knows he's a sin, he's a sinner, and. He knew that, but here he's pleading with God not to count him with the sinners, especially here. The, the It's hypocrites, people who speak kindly, but they actually have hatred and malice in their hearts. And this idea of being dragged away, I think commentators, and I think it makes sense that there's a historical context might be actually pointing to the threat of exile. So when Israel is unfaithful, and it's, it's a promise, a covenant agreement between God and them. When they abandon God and they commit idolatry, they will be taken into captivity. And it's possible that that's kind of what he's leaning into here, that, that, that context. Part of the, that's part of their covenant, that they agreed with God. And so he may be pleading that that wouldn't happen to him. And so for us, uh, we also ask God not, that God would not count us with the wicked, don't we? We do that as New Covenant believers, on the basis of the work of Jesus. As we sang, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's it. And so when we ask, God, do not count me with the wicked, that is the only ground on which we stand to make that claim, to make that request. When we put our faith in Christ, just like Abraham, our forefather of the faith, God counts it as righteousness. It's not a work. There's no room for boasting. And it's worth asking, just pausing here, Have you done that? Have you taken this humble posture, pleading, God, do not count me with the wicked, and positively asking God to save you, asking God on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection, his faithfulness, his perfection, his perfect life, his death that took your sin on your behalf, and his resurrection that shows that he rose victorious over that. Have you put your faith and salvation in that alone? We're all going to be judged according to our works. The question is, is it the works of Christ given to us, imputed to us, covering us with his righteousness? Or is it our own works that, as we see, uh, we get what we deserve if that's what we're leaning on? Our works are not sufficient to save us. We need the righteousness of Christ. We need the covering of Christ. If we're going to make this claim to not be counted as wicked. You see here, he's... um, Asking these things of God, and I think going back to the the posture thing, um, it's related to God's promises. He can boldly ask things. We're going to keep coming back to this. He can boldly ask things because they're directly related to God's promises. And that's the tricky part of pleading and asking God for things, right? Like, what are we pleading for? Why are we asking God for these things? On what basis do we believe that we have the right to ask things of God? Um, and, and so we, this gets tricky, right? There's things that God has promised as as believers, and then there's things that He hasn't promised. And if we confuse God's faithfulness with His kindness, our faith can get shaken. For example, if you believe that if God heals me, um, then He will be faithful. He will be kind, but He's never promised that you won't get disease, that disease won't wreck your body, that people won't die that you love. Um, that's not something he's promised. In fact, it's promised that we will suffer in this world, right? We have to be careful about what the motivation and what we expect God to do. Our expectations are incredibly important when we enter this posture of, of pleading. God wants to hear our distresses. He wants to hear our anxieties. He wants us to bring our requests and be, have them made known to him. Um, but our expectations are important. And David, so in this historical context, David had a lot of promises given to him. As an Israelite, you have the covenant of Sinai, that he had pro- covenant promises with, b- between God and his people. He is also a king. And in 2 Samuel 7, God made the covenant with David, specifically around him as the faithful king. And so those are the co- pro- covenant promises God, David is hanging on to. And so the question for us is, what are the promises we hang on to when we come to God in this posture of pleading? What has God promised us as New Covenant believers? Because that is the framework that we are in now, the New Covenant. So what is that? And if you, you know, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, all through the New Testament, um, specifically 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 lay this out, the book of Romans. um, And we see what is promised to us, and it's forgiveness of sins, right? The presence of the Holy Spirit, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, and His through his spirit, will never leave us or forsake us. That's a promise. The promise is we'll receive new hearts of flesh and replacing the hearts of stone. And so the heart of flesh wants to obey, right? And is renewed and regenerated. We're promised of a future life, a future in new creation that we will be with God forever. That's what he promises us. And for sure, God is kind when disease, uh, when the effects of the curse don't reach us, when life is preserved, when disease doesn't, you know, destroy us completely when we maybe we have more than what we need financially. That's God's kindness. But His faithfulness is to His promises. And so we have to be careful. We have, in fact, His promises have more to do with the guarantee. As Jesus said, promised what? You will have trouble. That is a promise. And so it's important to know what God has promised, and then we can confidently bank on that. Right, so that's what David's doing. He's confidently banking on God's covenant promises to him. And so, if we are in Christ, we can confidently come before the throne of grace and say, "God, forgive me," and He will. He say, "God, be with me," and He is. God, help me to understand and be comforted by Your Spirit in this, and He will. Those are the things we can plead and be confident that we we will get an answer. So we have to be sure of what we are getting an answer for and what we're uh, asking of God. The next thing David does is he asks God for justice to be carried out there on the evildoers. And this gets a little tricky, right? The characteristics of these people he describes, um, they're hypocritical. It says that they speak in friendly ways with their neighbors while malice is in their hearts. So they don't consider the works of God. In other words, they don't worship God, right? They're not God followers. They're not, uh, they don't worship God as he deserves. And so David is asking God to do to give them what they deserve, as idolaters, and he's asking for justice, because the fruit, of these people, the fruit of these people's lives is the exact opposite of one who is humbly coming before God, one who acknowledges God, who God is, and it's tough language for us to read, I think, like, especially in light of the Sermon on the Mount, we just got out of Matthew, and it's like, wait, what am I, how do I treat people who are, you know, uh, who are offending me, right? I'm supposed to turn the other cheek, I'm supposed to love my enemies, what's going on? How are we to faithfully long for justice? That is a, a huge question. How do you faithfully long for justice? Well, we have to read it through the lens of the gospel. Where has justice been dealt with? Romans 3, the righteousness of God, the just, God is just and justifier. Why? Because how can sinners be made righteous? That, that doesn't make sense. That's not just. But because of Christ, that's, Paul says in Romans 3, God is just and justifier because of the death of Jesus on behalf of sinners. So justice is dealt with at the cross, established at the cross of Christ. And it's going to be finalized, Revelation 22, the great white throne judgment, when all will be vulnerable and exposed before God. And if we're in Christ, justice will be met because of Christ. If not, there will be justice dealt with, dealt upon us. God is the final judge, not us. That's where we have to start when we're talking about asking God For justice. And specifically with individual people. um, Remember, Paul says, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Uh, Our primary enemies are not people. And that's the significant difference, I think, from Old Testament Israel that it has to be recognized. There was physical warfare, right? Physical enemies that had to be dealt with. Um, And for us, that's not the case. Right, where we rest in the justice secured at the cross, the promise of future judgment. So the church isn't an army, some weird cults, they probably are, but like, you know, we're not called to go fight people physically, you know, and all these things. Um, it's not like Old Testament Israel. The promises are different, the structure is different. And so justice will be served in the end based on the justice either at the cross or the fact that someone w- will be cast away from God because. Their stand before God unrighteous. And so, um, and it, as he says here in Psalm, Psalm 28, they might look good, but it doesn't matter. It's not going to matter on the last day. God sees through the heart. God sees the issues at work going on inside. And it reminds us of the Pharisees, right? As we've been through Matthew a little bit here, the Pharisees look good on the outside, but they were not <clears throat> connected with God in faith. They were not connected to God in surrender of their lives. And so, They were wicked, and Christ has a lot of strong words for them. It doesn't doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. The only thing that keeps us from being counted as wicked is the work of Christ, because he is our rock. And because of that solid foundation of God's salvation, we can boldly ask, God, on the basis of Christ's righteousness, do not drag me away with the wicked. That's how we can read the psalm. Because God's covenant faithfulness, his righteousness has secured us. Secured his salvation. And, and he is pleased. It goes back to pleading as worship. He's pleased when we come before him in confession. Plead, God, I confess this sin to you again and again and again. Do not count me of the wicked. And we bank on that promise because we are in Christ. That act of constantly pleading with God in this way brings him Glory. And for us, it shapes us, it molds us, it helps us as we interact with God in this way, as we remain humble, it turns our hearts to worship Him. So that's a little bit about how we can desire, and there's a lot more to be said probably about how we can desire righteousness, desire justice in this world. But at the end of the day, we have to bank on the justice at the cross and look forward and anticipate the righteousness, the justice that will be happening in the end times in the judgment. And so we see that pleading is appropriate. Pleading demonstrates trust. And as we look at this way David has moved through the psalm, he has pled with God. He has worked these things out with God. He knows he's going to respond. And in verse 6, we see that pleading demonstrates trust. Right? Pleading demonstrates trust, and trust leads to worship. So if you look at verse 6 with me. He says, Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the sound of my pleading. We don't know what happened for David. Something clicked, or maybe something physically happened, and David recognized that God, and acknowledges God has heard him. And maybe it's just because he knows God has heard him. But he says, He has heard the sound of my pleading. We See that word again. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart celebrates, and I give thanks to him, With my song. So when we plead humbly with God's promises and glory in our minds, then worship is the natural response. Because when we plead humbly before God, um, our hearts are aligned with His will, they're aligned with His promises, and it brings Him glory and our greater good, and we respond in worship. Again, He reverts back to this protection language, strength. Uh, He calls God His strength, He's a stronghold. He is uh, my shield. It reminds me of Genesis 15 where God came to Abram uh, in the middle and to make the covenant with him. And he says, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Do not be afraid. Deuteronomy 33 to Israel, God says, who is like you, Israel, a people saved by the Lord. He is the shield that protects you, the sword you boast in. God is the one who provides us protection and strength. We have to rely on him for that. And if you see, when we do that, we get help. Notice the order here in the middle of verse 7. He says, The Lord is my strength and shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Make sure you catch that. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. How do we get help? Through trust. David humbly pled with God and he became strong. But not because of God's strength only but only because of God's strength, not because of anything He brought to the table. And it's when we recognize our own source of strength is nothing. It's net zero in the grand scheme of things. We have nothing to good to offer. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. It's when we recognize that it's nothing. The only thing we bring to this equation with God is our sin, and He can deal with it. He's only helped after he trusts God. And I, I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul is talking about the thorn. Paul gained strength from that. He says, I pleaded with the Lord three times this thorn about this thorn, that it would leave me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will mostly.'" Gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure, it's crazy. I take pleasure in weakness, I take pleasure in insults, hardships, persecution, difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. That's how we get strength through weakness. The pathway of pleading leads us to get protection and provision that we so long for, but it only comes through God. That's the pathway, through weakness. As David says, my heart trusts in him and I am helped. When we surrender, when we ask for what we need before God in humility, we get help. It's such a relief. Like, we don't have to manufacture strength. We try so hard so often. I try so hard so often to manufacture strength in this posture, to make up sources of sustenance within myself and to, to, to be something I'm not. And all we have to do is trust. All we have to do is lean into God. He is our source of strength. And it's that act of humility. It's owning our weakness. It's owning our humanity. It's owning our limits, resigning ourselves to the reality that we are not God. We are not in control. Resign yourself to the loving presence of God. And this help comes because... We relieve ourselves of the burden. When Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. The unburdening of the imaginations that we have to be everything, that we have to be strong enough, smart enough, whatever it is. It's burdens we were never meant to carry to protect ourselves and provide for ourselves this fallen world. We can't do it. And so what does this help practically look like, you might say? Because like, I've asked, for God for a lot of, asked God for a lot of things and he didn't give it. What does this what does it even mean, this help? What does this help look like for a new covenant believer? Well, for those in Christ, God has protected us from the greatest enemies of sin and death and Satan. He has protected us from an eternity apart from him. He has saved us from that. This help looks like the Spirit being provided for us to convict us of sin, which destroys us, so it convicts us of sin. That is help to point us to Christ. He comforts us in our weakness we are comforted and provided help with his love. We are provided his word. That is a help, is it not? With the church, with the body of Christ, there's many ways God helps us. We're just so you know, uh, God helps those who helps themselves is not a Bible verse. You know, like 80% of people think that's a Bible verse. There are some polls, like, it's wild. So just so you know, it's not a Bible verse. God helps those who help themselves. A lot of people throw that around. It's not a Bible verse. It's not in the Bible. God helps those who trust God helps those who surrender to him, who trust in him. That's in the Bible. And notice that because of who God is and what he's done, David then breaks into song. My heart celebrates, right? He gives thanks to him with his song. So pleading demonstrates trust. And trust leads to help. And help, when we receive that, it leads to worship. This is why the humble pleading is the pathway to God's provision. In his protection, the end result is giving, getting what we need and trusting in him. God says he's going to supply, right? Philippians 2, God will supply all our needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ. That's the help. Not the riches of his glory in America. Right? That's not the help we're looking for or hoping we get. Not the riches of his glory in your technology. Not the riches of his glory anywhere else, but Christ. That's where our deepest needs are satisfied. That's where our deepest longings are met. And everything else is just superfluous. It doesn't count for anything in the grand scheme of things. And yes, things, material things can relieve us. They can uh, point us as gifts to God, but they are not God. It's all Christ. So when we first initially pled with Christ to save us, that's when we began to experience this protection and provision, and we have to keep Going back, continue going back to the well to experience that over and over. Reminding ourselves over and over. Not that we get saved again. It's just to remind ourselves of the gospel that we are needy. Not demanding they be met by other things. Denying that we don't have any needs. Both of those don't work. Those modes of living don't work. We have to entrust ourselves to the rock that is God. And that's the daily rhythm that we need to get into of of worship. Offering our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And at the end of the day, deep joy results in that. And I wonder if verses 8 and 9 are sort of the the contents of his response of joy, almost like a song. And it's a corporate song. You notice it goes from being personal to sort of being corporate in these last two verses. If you look at verse 8 with me, he says, The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the stronghold of salvation for his anointed. Save your people. Bless your possession. Shepherd them and carry them forever. David transitions from the Lord is my strength to the Lord is the strength of his people. And we've hit this maybe three or four times because he, David's talked about three or four times throughout this psalm. But just worth asking, point blank, is the Lord your strength? Is he your strength? Is he your stronghold? And how might you know? You're like, okay, I, I think, maybe, right? How might you know? There's, there's a lot of ways maybe to evaluate that. Um, but what is stress like in your life? How do you deal with stress? I'm not going to ask you if you're stressed because everybody's stressed. I get it. But what do you do with stress? How do you process it? Of course, we all have full schedules and there's a lot of unknowns, a lot of thing, rain. You know, I'm sure everybody's roof is leaking somewhere, right? There's all kinds of stress in our lives. We all have it. But are you stressed because you're giving more than you can't give? You're giving more of yourself. You're in a position where um, you're overburdening yourself because you feel like you have to be the rock for everybody in your life. And if you're in that position, you might think you're being loving, right? Overly giving all the time uh, and, and totally stressed because you are constantly trying to provide for everybody. But it's not loving because you're, you're giving from something you don't have. It's giving a gift you can't give. Um, The foundation is just pebbles of your life, not the bedrock of Christ. You're only human. You're not God. And, And sometimes we get stressed because we take on the position of God. Have to be everything, all things for all people, for everybody in my life. And we can run ourselves ragged. And God isn't our strength. We are our strength. And it's not noble And I say this from personal experience. It's not noble to burn yourself out and violate your humanity um, for the sake of posing as strong. The sake of posing that you have it all together. The sake of posing that you are, you can be the best or you can be everything for everyone in your life. We're limited. Our strength is limited. And that's going to prove itself out over time because it shows that there was nothing, a vacuum that we're trying to give from. But, if we go through this process as David lays out, God is the source of the strength for his people. God is our strength and shield. And so resourced in his love and strength, we can be strong only through him. It's through humility, the humble pathway of pleading with God in our need. It's not a badge of honor to live a life of self-sacrifice or independence just to prove to others that you can do it, right? To to prove, to be an example right to others who uh, need to suck it up. Look at me. You need to suck it up. Look at me. I'm giving everything, right? That's not noble. Uh, God isn't after white-knuckled, willful obedience. He's after surrender, willing surrender to him in humility, acknowledging our need. Jesus is the only one capable of taking the weight of the world on his shoulders. That's it, not us. And our strength comes from him. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And I think in this next part of uh, verse 8, there's a little bit of a Christological reference here. Because God has provided through his anointed one, Jesus' salvation. And, and there's this, the, the phrase his anointed uh, is the term Messiah um, and in the Hebrew there. And, and here it, it refers to David, specifically in this context, David is the anointed king. Messiah just means anointed one. And David was the anointed one in that context, the one who was delivered. And he says, "You have delivered your stronghold of salvation for his your anointed, meaning me." Talk to David saying, "You have been a stronghold for me and I am your anointed king." But I would suggest to you that the greater David also found stronghold and strength in his purpose from God. He found his strength in God, knowing that he was the promised one, knowing that who he was and trusted in God completely. Even though it's not directly quoted, there's a lot of Psalms and prophetic quotations by Jesus to indicate that, that he fully trusted the Father, that he fully trusted him with the plan. Even in the garden, not my will, but yours be done, knowing that he would not be defeated by the grave because of the willingly, he willingly went to the cross. And because of that, tr- that is true of the anointed one, the true king, because that is true, we can plead with God. And we see this pleading one last time here in verse 9. And uh, by now, it doesn't really feel like pleading. It just kind of feels normal as we get through the, to the end of the song This way, this, this request at the end, Save your people, bless your possession, shepherd them, carry them forever. What a beautiful request to end, to end on. Again, the, the, he's basically exhorting God, coming up short maybe of a demand, um, and yet God has already promised all these things So in so many different ways. And so he can boldly just say, without you know, pretense, God, save your people. God, bless us. God, shepherd us. God, carry us. And he can do that because of his promises, because he knows it's true, because he knows God is going to come through for him. We can cry out to God in the same way. Ask that he save us, because he's promised to do so. To, the request to bless your possession, it connects this idea that God's people are his inheritance. His possession, as he calls Israel so many times, how meaningful is that to be called God's treasured possession that is blessed by him. Usually we imagine blessing as getting possessions. But here, it is God doing the blessing and we are possessed by God. It's beautiful. And the request for God to shepherd his people reminds us of Psalm 23. And many commentators say that this section of Psalm from 22 to 28 is like a kind of a a section here. And this language sort of bookends it. And shepherding isn't just the, the kindness, but there's also a kind shepherd, but there's a kingly element to it, uh, given, especially given the psalm's author, King David, right? And, and you consider the famous passage from, from Micah chapter 5, says, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be a ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord. In the majestic name of the Lord his God, they will live securely. For then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. That is our shepherd king. And he's not only our king, but he protects us, he rules us, he carries us gently. If there was any more questions about our strength versus God's strength here, this solves it, right? We need to be carried like a baby sheep, a stupid sheep that keeps jumping in a ditch. We need to be carried. And not just now, not just temporarily, not just for a little bit. It says carry us forever. You know, we put so much stock into things that we carry around in our pockets, you know, your cell phone or your stuff, you know. Uh, You can carry them, though. And, And the reality is, if you can carry something, that thing can't carry you, right? That's the logic of the, the verse I quoted in your bulletin from Isaiah 46. They're a description of idols that the nation of Israel were carrying and putting in their carts, but they ended up going out to exile, and the idols didn't do anything. They're just going on the cart because they're, they're nothing. And uh, this idea they can't rescue, they're growing into captivity. And God says, I'm the one who has sustained you. There in Isaiah 46, I'm the one who will carry you, and I will continue to do so. Trust in me. Let's remember, we need carrying. We all need carrying. So anything we can carry, anything that is dependent on us, it's not going to cut it to be a recipient, a vessel of our worship. It's going to be nothing It's going to let us down. God's carrying sustainment lasts forever. Nothing else compares to his glory, nothing else compares to His care for us. I encourage you today, turn from the things that are bearing you down that you are relying on that actually end up being a burden to you that are idols that tear tear you down that you are trusting in. God is the one that carries you. Nothing else can take that place. So as we finish uh, this psalm together, I just um, I'm losing my voice, so I'm going to just take a moment of silence. I, I would like us to just consider, um, and I ask the worship team to come up at this point, and I want to just close our eyes and bow our heads and just take a moment of silence of how this psalm might uh, need to be applied to you. What does God have for you here? Who or what have you entrusted yourself to, to carry you right now? Is the Lord your strength? Who or what is shepherding you? Who or what is guiding you at this point in your life? So again, who who or what have you entrusted yourself to, to carry you? Is the Lord your strength? Where are you getting guidance and shepherding from? Let's just take a moment to consider these things. Let the Holy Spirit speak to us. god we confess that you are all we need and we confess that we have turned to so many other things for strength for sustaining grace that they cannot give we have turned to ourselves to sustain ourselves to uh, provide what we cannot provide for ourselves and others so uh, break us lord of our pride help us to find ourselves in you may we find our righteousness in you alone May we trust in you alone for our salvation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.